Welcome to the Vineyard Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information on this podcast or other resources, go to vineyardlive.us. To learn more about us, go to thevineyardchurch.us. two physicists wrote a letter that changed the world. And since I kind of can't help but take every possible opportunity to talk about physics from the stage, I'm going to tell you the story. Now, at the beginning of the 1900s, there was a really interesting period of time in physics where there was a lot of development that happened very quickly. Began with Albert Einstein developing the theory of relativity, which instantly made him a global celebrity and continued from there into the weird and mysterious world of quantum mechanics. Took a couple of decades for the physics community to kind of begin to figure that out, and by the late 1930s, a lot was well understood, and physicists were beginning to study a new type of reaction, what we call a nuclear reaction. Now, Albert Einstein had been watching all of this, along with fellow physicist Szilard, and they decided together that it was important to make sure that the United States government was tracking with the situation and the growing tensions in Europe. And so in 1939, the two of them wrote a letter to President FDR. I believe we've got a picture there. Um, This was written on what's called a typewriter. Those of you below 30, this was like a, a mechanical computer thing. I know it's sort of hard to imagine. But, but this letter to President FBR basically says three things. It says, hey, number one, um, the science is progressing. We, we've unlocked what we believe to be a new energy source, and it looks quite possible that this could result in really big, powerful bombs, what we now call atomic bombs. Number two... You can't afford to ignore this. You have to pay attention to the research, and we would suggest that you begin to invest in exploring this as a trajectory because, number three, it sure looks like Germany is already working to build one of these bombs. They send this letter off to FDR. FDR reads it, decides it is important to invest some more time and energy and money into this, which eventually turns into the Manhattan Project, which does develop the first atomic bombs, and I don't need to tell you how much that has changed the course of world history since. In this short two-page letter, these two physicists put their finger on a problem and said, this is something that needs to be dealt with, and prescribed the solution. And as a result, the course of world history was changed. We have in the back of our Bible a strange and mysterious book called Revelation. It's an unveiling of Jesus Christ. And in the first few chapters of Revelation, we have seven letters where Jesus does exactly the same thing. He puts his finger on a problem that each of the churches are facing, and he says, here's what it would look like to begin to move past this. This is what the solution is. And these seven letters have proven so valuable that they're forever canonized in the Bible, benefiting the church to this day. 
And that is what we're looking at, at least for the, these few weeks of this series, Revelation, the Unveiling of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, Julie introduced the first two letters. This week, we're going to continue and do the next two. And what we're going to find is that though these letters are thousands of years old, they address incredibly relevant topics for today. We're going to find out that they address issues of compromise. What, what happens when we compromise? How do we, how do we deal with compromise? They address issues of walking in freedom or what it looks like to not walk in freedom. And as I said, although these letters are nearly 2,000 years old, I can't help but feel like I think they're relevant for each of us. Is there not a person here who at times deals with issues of either compromise or lack of freedom? I think we all do. And so with that, we are going to look at an unveiling of Jesus Christ that's going to lead us into truth and into purity. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you that it is you that this whole revelation is about. And what I ask today as we explore your word is that you would be unveiled in each and every one of our hearts in a new way. We want to see you for who you are. And we want that revelation, God, to bring us into the truth, to bring us into the purity more and more and more every day. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, we've got a lot to get through, so we're going to kind of just dive right on in here. The, the, second, uh, the, the first two letters we did last week, the last two letters of Revelation 2 are what we're going to unpack today. And the first one is to a church in a town called Pergamum. Now, a bit of backstory, Pergamum was unique among the seven cities that these letters are written to because Pergamum was the political capital of the province of Asia. It was where political power was centralized, and so we might think of it as the kind of Washington, D.C. of the part of the world that these letters are being written to. Only Different from Washington, D.C., at this time in history, the idea of separation of church and state, of religion and political power being separate things, rather than that, they were joined and merged together as one. Emperors were often thought to be uh, offspring of the gods themselves, and, and, and uh, people who carried political power were often thought to be appointed by the gods. And so this is not only the political capital, but it's also a religious capital. There were all kinds of temples to Zeus and Dionysus and whatever other gods that were worshipped in this portion of the world at that time. And it is in this context that Jesus writes a letter to the church. Here's what he says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, Julie uh, unpacked a pattern for us last week that we're going to see continue through all the letters. That the letters begin with a picture, a picture of Jesus and an unveiling of him, as it were. Then Jesus identifies a problem, and he invites us into a partnership, which is a solution to that problem. And we see here the picture of Jesus is described as um, one who has a two-edged sword. What's that about? 
Well, this was something that would be really well understood to anyone in Pergamum in the ancient world. Because what's happening here is in the ancient world, there were um, two different classes of governors in the Roman Empire. There were governors who did not have a two-edged sword, and there were governors who did have a two-edged sword. And those who had a two-edged sword, it was a symbol that they wielded the power of capital punishment. And Pergamum, being the capital of Asia, had a governor who had a two-edged sword. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, don't think that that guy has real authority and power here. I'm the one who has real authority and power. You think he wields the power of life and death? I have the spiritual power of life and death, is what Jesus is saying here. Let's see what he says to the church. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus proceeds to highlight the difficulty of their situation. He says, guys, I know what it's like to be in the center of a religious capital that is anti-me. That's what he's saying. When he says the place where Satan dwells or Satan's throne is, he's talking about the fact that it's a religious capital. And he's saying, I know it's super tough, but you guys are being faithful. You're holding fast to my name. That's amazing. I know this is as hard as it gets. In fact, you guys have even had martyrdom. You've had people who have been killed for it, but you're holding fast. Good job. That's amazing. He continues, and he puts his finger on the problem we're going to see here. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Okay, this, is, this gets complicated. What? What's happening here? Jesus starts pulling out these names of characters from the Old Testament and helping paint a picture of what's happening here. Now, remember, the whole book of Revelation is what's called an apocalyptic literature, meaning an unveiling, a depiction of the spiritual realm. We're getting a picture of what's happening there. And what Jesus is doing is he's putting his thumb on the problem of the spiritual uh, adversary of the church in Pergamum. And to do that, he uses a symbol from the Old Testament, this guy, Balaam. Now, you can read the story of Balaam if you like. It's in Numbers 22 through 24, and it's a fascinating and really interesting story. We won't go there this morning, uh, so let me just kind of summarize it. At this time in the biblical story, the Israelites are in that 40 years where they're wandering through the wilderness after they've left Egypt, before they come into the promised land. And there's a king in the area where they're wandering through the wilderness. His name is Balak. He's the one referred to here. And Balak has heard these stories about how the Israelites' God leveled Egypt. How he's, how he's fighting for these people and how these people are like a special anointed people. And he's worried that their God is going to give him or give them his territory. 
And he's like, this isn't good. I don't, want, I don't want to be in a battle against that God. I don't want these people on my turf. So he goes to this guy, Balaam. And Balaam is kind of like a soothsayer. He's like, he's like a prophet, but like not in the right direction. And he goes to this guy, Balaam, and he says, hey, if I give you all this money, will you curse the Israelites for me? So they don't have God's favor and they don't have God's protection. And Balaam goes, no, I can't do that. I mean, if God has favor on them, I can't take it away. And so Balaam at first refuses, but Balak, is perse- he perseveres and he sends more money. He says, I really need you to do this. Here, take all of this money. And so the second time, Balaam compromises. And he says, okay, I'll go. We'll see what happens. And so he goes along with, and there's a really funny story in there about a talking donkey and all of that, which I would encourage you to read. Again, Numbers 22 through 24. And, and what happens is when he gets to the place where he's going to try and curse the Israelites, it's a really funny scene because he tries three separate times to curse the Israelites, and each time God puts a blessing in his mouth instead. So he stands up and he's like, oh, I bless you in the name of the Lord and you're anointed and favored and all this. And Balak is like, what are you doing to me? Come on, man. So after three times, he says, fine, never mind. I don't want your help. And Balaam says this, he says, well, look, here's the deal, okay? I can't curse them because God has blessed them. But if you want to deal with your problem, here's what you do. Have your people intermarry with their people and begin to get them to worship your gods. Because when that happens, the favor of their God won't be on them anymore, and you'll be okay. And so he incites Balak or Balak to... Um, to instill compromise in the Israelites. And what we see here is in two separate ways, Balaam is a symbol of compromise leading you away from God. And he becomes a symbol for that in the Old Testament. And so this is the symbol that Jesus is lifting out. He's saying, guys, in your midst, you've held fast to my name. You haven't given up worshiping me but there's a spirit that's trying to get you to have me and something else. To bow down to me and to Zeus. To bow down to me and to Aphrodite. It's a spirit of compromise. And that compromise is leading them into rituals, food sacrifice to idols, practicing sexual immorality. These were um, rituals that were often tied up with the religions of the ancient world. And so what does Jesus say to these people. Actually, hold on. Before we even go to that, let's just pause here. This is sort of a moment. (laughs) You and I probably don't bow down to Zeus or Aphrodite. (laughs) But I think it's worth just taking a moment and asking ourselves this question. Is it possible that there's degrees of compromise and value that we get from things in our world? Doesn't usually look like a temple anymore. (laughs) But it's easy to worship the gods of money or sex, entertainment, power, pleasure. Who among us doesn't at times have to deal with a degree of compromise there? And sometimes it's big. The big stuff is easy to see. But sometimes it's small too. 
I mean, just in the last month or so, my wife and I, we've been uh, watching a series that was recommended to us on Netflix. And it's not like the worst series ever. It's not pornographic. It's not, it's not whatever. But just as we've watched it, there's like this twinge in our hearts. And we're just like, ah, I just feel like this is like glorifying things that aren't good. And after watching enough of it, we were like, this doesn't look like it's coming around. This is, this is, there's compromise happening here. And we just decide we don't need to keep watching this. We can, we can just set this down. We don't, we don't need that sowing into our, our minds and our hearts. Compromise can be big, but compromise exists in all different shapes and sizes. And what does Jesus say when we're in that place? Well, here's what he says. He says, therefore, repent. He's like, yeah, just turn around. <laughs> if you're in compromise, just, just discontinue it. Just stop watching the show. Just stop, stop whatever. <laughs> Therefore, repent. He says, if not, I'll come to you soon and I'll war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now we read this and it's easy to kind of go, ugh, ugh. Jesus is going all Old Testament again. I knew it. I knew he really hated us, right? Okay, no, that's not what's happening here. We need to read this carefully. He does not say, I'm going to come and war against you. He says, I'm going to come and war against them. Remember, he's put his finger on the spiritual opposition here. He's saying there's a spirit that is trying to drive you to compromise. And so turn away from compromise. And if you don't turn away from compromise, that's fine. I'll take care of it. I'll come and deal with the compromise. I'll take out that spirit. I'm going to come war against the spirit that's causing you a problem. And you're going to see my spiritual authority, the sword of my mouth. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, turn away, and if you can't, then I will help. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. The, the, the letter concludes by saying, look, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. Receive the empowering of the Spirit to do this. And then it concludes with this kind of weird thing about like hidden manna and a white stone. Like, what is that about? Well, you have to read that reflected against the problem, which was food sacrifice to idols and practices of sexual immorality. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying this, look, you're, you're settling for food sacrifice to idols, but I have secret, hidden, divine food, manna. You're settling for sexual immorality and the degree of intimacy that that feels like you're getting, but I have secret, true, hidden intimacy with me. What Jesus is saying is he's saying this, look, he knows that compromise always feels like it meets a need for us. We don't do these things because there's no benefit. We do them because we do feel a benefit. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I actually see those needs and have something even better for them than what the compromise is offering you. You think, I don't know? I know, I've got better. This is what he's, he's saying he's inviting us into. And so I just, you know, before we continue to the, to the next letter, I just want to say, you know, 
if as I am sharing this, I know this is like feels a little heavy because the Holy Spirit will, will highlight some of these areas in our lives and our hearts. And it's not a condemnation or a judgment. I just told you I'm working through this stuff. I've been doing it in the last couple of weeks, right? If you've got an area where there's compromise in your life, I just want to invite you. Jesus isn't ticked at you. He just says, just disengage. I've got better for you. And if you need help, I'll come help fight those spiritual powers for you. It's a message that Jesus has for us. Let's keep going here. The next letter is to a church in a town called Thyatira. And Thyatira is kind of interesting because compared with the three we've just looked at, it is a very small backwoods type town. In fact, it's the kind of town that nobody would even know about, except it happened to be really famous for a particular trade, the making of a dye, a purple dye that was used for like imperial robes and stuff. And so what we have to think with Thyatira is like small blue collar town known for a particular trade, okay? Um, we might think, I don't know why this comes to mind in the moment. I hope this isn't offensive to anyone. But for some reason, Decatur comes to mind. <laughs> uh, if you're from Decatur, I love you, okay? But, but, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a central industry in Decatur that everybody knows about, right? Okay? So you can, just, you can just take that or reject it. And if you hate me, then tell me and not Mike and Julie. That's on me. Okay. All right. So... <laughs> So here's what Jesus writes on, uh, the, to, this, to this group of people. It says this, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now once again, we start with a picture here. And the picture we have is this is Jesus the divine. Interesting little tidbit here. This is the only place in the entire Bible where out of Jesus' own words, he says, I am the Son of God. Other places, people say it for him. He usually calls himself Son of Man throughout the Gospels. But here, we don't see that. Here, he's on full display as Jesus as God. We see his eyes like a flame of fire, not human eyes divine eyes. His feet like burnished bronze, glowing. This is Jesus as God. And just as a, a little literary aside for the fellow grammar nerds out there like me, what, what's happening here in this moment is um, Revelation often employs a literary structure that was common in the ancient world called a chiastic structure. And the way a chiastic structure would work is there would be sort of a progressing through a list that would lead up to a peak and then back down. It's sort of a pyramid shaped. And in that pyramid, it's leading up to the core revelation. And what happens in many of the sevens, including these seven letters in Revelation, is that chiastic structure is employed. So we've had letter one, two, three, four is the peak. And then we're going to have five, six, seven going back down. And so the idea here is this. The unveiling of Jesus Christ that we see through these letters hits its peak with Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus the divine. That's just for you if you're a grammar nerd. If you're not, then we'll just keep moving, okay? <laughs> I'm a grammar nerd, so nerds unite. 
Okay, here's what Jesus, here's what Jesus continues with. He says this, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So Jesus starts by saying like, man, you guys are doing awesome. Did you look at that list? Love, faith, service, endurance, and you're getting better and better. Like Jesus is really proud of these guys. They're doing fantastic. There's a lot of really good things happening here. He continues, and he's going to put his finger again on the spiritual problem here. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, Jesus again identifies the spiritual problem here with a symbol from the Old Testament. Jezebel was the queen to King Ahab in the Old Testament. And together, Jezebel and Ahab were the kind of lowest point where Israel had most departed from God. And Ahab was really bad, but Jezebel was even worse. Jezebel's like actively steering everything as opposed to God. She is rounding up God's prophets and slaughtering them. She is murdering. She is doing all kinds of things. And in the, in the whole process, she's practicing control and manipulation and seduction. And so if Balaam is the symbol of compromise from the Old Testament, Jezebel is the symbol of seduction and bondage. And we see that that spirit is causing sexual immorality and, again, uh, eating food sacrificed to idols, a turning away from God. And so we see kind of a similar type of problem that's happening here, only the issue is more pronounced. Compromise is ostensibly something that we can probably walk away from. But if you're not free, if you're bound... You don't have the power to free yourself. And before we continue, again, I, just, I, just, I want us to just take an honest look at our own lives. Are there places in our own life where we're stuck in something that's not of God and we can't seem to be able to set ourselves free from it? You know, it specifically highlights sexual immorality. I think it's just worth just asking that. Maybe it's an addiction to pornography. Maybe it's experiencing your sexuality outside of the covenant of marriage. Whatever, whatever that looks like, I, th- I think it's worth just asking ourselves that. But, but we can go beyond because not all bondage is sexual. Maybe we're addicted to food. Maybe we drink a little too much. Maybe we're addicted to entertainment. Sometimes they're big, again, sometimes they're small. I remember a few years ago realizing that I was actually addicted to my phone. I didn't really know when it happened, but I noticed that when I was in the middle of a conversation and my phone would like buzz or ding or something, like I could not keep my mind in the conversation. And I, and I had to work with God to reshape the way that I moved, used and interacted with my phone to move it away from an addiction and back into a tool. 
Whatever it looks like, I think it's worth asking ourselves if we have those areas, big or small, obvious or not. (laughs) What does Jesus say? He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And once again, this is kind of an intense little passage here, but notice what Jesus is saying. He's saying this. He's like, look, I know that you guys are stuck and this is not turning around. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come deal with the problem for you. There is a spirit that is bringing you into bondage and I am going to come as the son of God and I'm going to attack the spirits that are keeping my people bound up. I am going to cut off their influence That's when it says, I will strike her children dead. Again, don't interpret that like literally. It's it's not a literal letter. It's it's showing something in the spirit. And the idea in the spirit is, I'm going to cut this thing off so significantly, there is no forward generations of it. I'm going to deal with it, and it's going to be done, is what he's saying. (laughs) And you're going to know, in fact, he says, all the churches are going to know that I'm the one who searches mind and heart and I'll give to each of you according to your works. Now, again, we have to read that in light of a couple of verses earlier where Jesus is saying, I'm so proud of your fantastic works. So it's easy to read that and be like, oh, Jesus is gonna come be angry with us. No, 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 he's saying this. All the churches are gonna know that I'm the God who fights for my church. You guys are doing good and I'm not gonna put up with that spirit. That's what he's saying. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, anyone who's managed to avoid the the bondage thing or whatever it is, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Just wait for me. I'm going to take care of it. To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus concludes the letter by saying this, you guys have been ruled over. I'm going to restore you to the place of rule yourself. You guys have been in bondage. That's not how it's supposed to work. I set you free from that stuff. You're supposed to extend my authority. I'm going to bring you back into that place. And in fact, I'm going to give you the morning star, a symbol of Jesus himself. He's saying, the son of God that you see me as, that's who I'm going to give you, me. (laughs) I'm going to give you me, and that's what's going to empower you to move from bondage to authority. That's what Jesus says. And and what we learn from these two letters is, is truthfully, it's the gospel news that Jesus fights for us when we have no ability to fight left. 
That when we hit problems that we're stuck in, when we cannot, Jesus can. And that Jesus wants to be the Son of God on our behalf, dealing with every layer of issues that come against us. Be they small or be they big. Be they things that we can just walk away from. We can just say, God, I repent, I'm done. And we can walk away and be free. Jesus says, that's amazing, I love it. But he also says, but if you can't do that, then I'm gonna come I'm gonna wage war on that thing and make you free. That's what we see in these places. The kingdom of God is grace to the world, but it's judgment to the spiritual realm. Say that just one more time again, because it's really important. The kingdom of God is grace to the world, but it's judgment to the spiritual realm. We get grace. We're made one through Jesus, and we are brought through the crucifixion into the resurrection. The spiritual realm is not. They run straight into the cross and they die. And what we see in the book of Revelation is Jesus manifesting his judgment against the spiritual powers that are opposing us. It's not about us. It's about a God who passionately fights for his people and wants to bring us into every bit of freedom and wholeness that he died to purchase for us. And so as we close, here's what I want to do. Worship team, you guys can come on out if, if you like, wherever you are hidden back there. <laughs> I'd just like to do this. Everybody just close your eyes right now for just a moment. And I know in a message like this that, that often the Lord will bring to our mind and bring to our hearts areas where maybe we are walking in compromise or maybe we aren't walking in freedom. And, and I, just, I just want each of us, with, with that like in our hearts, uh, I just want us to use our imagination. I want you to picture the Jesus that we see unveiled in these letters. He walks up to you. The Jesus who has the sharp two-edged sword. He has all the authority he needs to deal with problems. He's the son of God. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. Marvel's got nothing on him. He's the son of God. This is who Jesus comes to you as, and he comes to you. He doesn't say, fix it up, and then we'll talk. He doesn't say, you deal with it, and then we'll converse. He comes to you, and he says, I'm passionate for your freedom. I'm here to set you into into wholeness. And we just say, Jesus, we want every bit of that. Lord, the areas in our life where, where perhaps there's, there's compromise, we, we give those to you. We do say we repent. God, we don't, we don't want to live in compromise, small or big. We want you to be Lord of 100% of our lives. And Jesus, in the areas where we need you to set us free, Lord, we just humbly say we want that. Would you break the chains that keep us bound? Would you cut away the spiritual powers that oppose us that we don't have the strength to break out of? We welcome you to be the son of God in our lives and to set us free. Jesus, give us yourself. Give us the bright morning star. We want to be your people walking in your freedom and your authority. It's in your name that we pray. 
Amen. Thanks for listening to the message today. To experience more powerful messages, go to vineyardlive.us or join our Vineyard Live Plus community to view conferences, trainings, and special teachings.